Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. Welcome to the Sundance TV headquarters. We're so happy to have you here today, and we are so happy to present our close-up with the Hollywood Reporter Filmmakers Panel. We have a great group today, and I want to introduce uh, our moderator, who will introduce our panelists, and it is the esteemed film reporter for The Hollywood Reporter, Tatiana Siegel. Please welcome her. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Close Up with the Hollywood Reporter Filmmakers Panel. We have a tremendous group of directors and producers here representing some of the finest at Sundance 2017. We've got, um, I'm going to do it alphabetically, even though we're um, uh, not seated alphabetically here. Um, Drake Doremus, who um, is the director and producer of Newness. And we have Matthew Heineman, and he is the director, cinematographer, editor, and producer of City of Ghosts. And we have David Permit, the longtime producer and um, of The Polka King, and also has Hacksaw Ridge, which will likely get an Oscar nomination this week. <laughs> And we have Dee Reese, director and writer of last night's big premiere, Mudbound. <laughs> Michael Showalter, director of last night's giant sale, The Big Sick. <laughs> and Danny Strong, writer, director, producer of Rebel in the Rye, which will make its world premiere on Tuesday. <laughs> so welcome and thank you all for coming. Um, maybe let's start with uh, all of you telling us a little bit about your current project that's playing at um, Sundance. Do you want order? Okay. Uh, so uh, I, the, I directed the film The Big Sick, which is a true story written uh, by uh, Kumail Nanjiani and Emily Gordon. Um, Kumail is also the lead in the film. And it's uh, the true story of their, um, their relationship, how they met, how they wound up together. It's an incredible crazy story um, about his family and they had an expectation that he would have a traditional uh, Pakistani Muslim arranged marriage. Um, she got very sick. I don't want to give too much away, uh, but uh, she got very sick and it sort of forced both of them to kind of confront some of their 
issues, and uh, it's a comedy. Ray Romano's in the film. Holly Hunter is in the film, and uh, that's the movie. It's kind mm-hmm. of a romantic comedy. And D. So Mudbound is a kind of post World War II drama set in the South. Um, it is about two families that are kind of tied to this piece of land with the mud being kind of a metaphor for race and for muck and the thing we're all stuck in together. And so for me, it's a story about, it's about fighting on many fronts. It's about the battle at home versus the battle abroad, and sometimes the battle at home is even bloodier. And it's with Carrie Mulligan, Mary J. Blige, Jason Mitchell, Jason Clark, Jonathan Banks. So it's a true ensemble cast, and I'm really excited to, to bring it to you guys. Uh, my movie is called Polka King, The Polka King, and Jack Black and uh, Jackie Weaver, Jason Schwartzman, uh, star in the movie. And um, it uh, started for me with a documentary based on a true story also. Um, uh, uh, it was called The Man Who Would Be Polka King was the name of the doc. And I was watching this doc through my fingers because I couldn't believe this actually happened. So I describe it kind of if Wolf of Wall Street is kind of the top of the mountain of uh, Ponzi schemes. It's a story about a guy who wanted to live the American dream but unfortunately made some of the wrong decisions. He was the king of polka music in Pennsylvania. <laughs> And he wound up in prison. I don't want to tell you anything more about it, because hopefully you'll see the film. But it's uh, a wildly funny movie. Jenny, Jenny uh, Slade plays uh, Jack's wife. Jackie Weaver is his mother-in-law. Jason Schwartzman is his band member. And it's just the most dysfunctional thing you can ever imagine. And uh, you may be watching the movie through your fingers, too, because it's just you can't believe it actually happened. Uh, but it's a comedy, uh, kind of the American dream gone a little off the rails, I should say. He wound up in prison. Um. Hey, everyone. Uh, I uh, wrote and directed Rebel in the Rye, which is the story of young J.D. Salinger and his journey to write The Catcher in the Rye. I got a wow. That's cool. <laughs> she likes it. Uh, it's also, uh, it's very much the story of uh, the creative process and uh, what writers go through and uh, uh, very much an uh, artist manifesto of the difficulties, struggles, and triumphs of being a writer and being an artist. There's a very universal story within his story, although his story is quite fascinating. And um, stars Nicholas Holt is, is uh, J.D. Salinger, and Kevin Spacey is his writing teacher, and Sarah Polson, Hope Davis, Victor Garber, Zoe Deutsch. It's a wonderful cast, and uh, we premiere Tuesday night, so please check it out at some point. Uh, hi, I'm Drake Remus. Uh, directed a film called Newness. Uh, about internet dating culture, about two people who are sort of stuck in an internet dating pattern and meet each other for a quick hookup and accidentally discover they have something deeper going on, and the film is about how they deal with that. Um, uh, written by my best friend, Ben Jones, who uh, I've been working with for 17 years. We met in high school, been here with four movies, um, and uh, we, f- we finished shooting uh, three months ago, so we kind of are a late addition, so maybe you haven't heard of the film, but uh, we premiere Wednesday night at 9.30, and it stars Nicholas Holt, Laia Costa, uh, Danny Houston, Matthew Gay Goobler, and uh, Albert Hammond Jr. Uh, Matt Heineman, I'm the only documentary filmmaker up here, I think. Um, so thank you for letting me on the stage with you guys. <laughs> <That's the party. laughs> um, my film is called City of Ghosts. It's about a group of friends who banded together um, in Syria when their hometown was taken over by ISIS. And a number of their friends were killed, um, exposing what ISIS is doing in their hometown. And then the film is about their sort of exodus, escaping um, from Syria to Turkey, and then onwards. So, all right. I just um. forgot to mention. 
if I could just mention, I forgot to mention, uh, Wally Walidarski of my Forbes directed and wrote uh, Polka King. I forgot to mention that, the altitude of or something. Yeah. <laughs> right. No worries. Um, now, Matthew, obviously your film is very relevant, but I'm going to ask the rest of the panel, how do you see your films, which are a mix of period and contemporary, as being relevant to today and what's going on in the current world we live in? Whoever wants to grab it first. I would say that, that, that Mudbound is very much about now and that it questions like what it means to be a citizen, what it means to be an American. And you know, like one of the characters, Ron Zell, is more an American overseas than he is in his own country. And I think that's something that we're obviously, talk, obviously talking about now. And also just, you know, I think proximity breaks down otherness. And so in Mudbound, we see how the military creates proximity that, you know, is able to make you know guys be friends that ordinarily wouldn't be friends, and so when you start seeing each other in particular, in particular, instead of in aggregate, like different conversations happened, and once you know ideas that seem very rigid, you find are very porous, and so I think that's kind of what we're dealing with now. And the more we can do that, the better. And someone may not listen. You know, I was in D.C. on inauguration day for the protest, and then the very next day premiering this film, and for me, it's like fighting on different fronts. And it's like someone who may not have heard me waving a sign could come see Mudbound and then hear that. Like, I was hugging a woman who, I was like, oh my God, like, we'd probably be on different sides of the street, but we're hugging and she's crying and, like, I'm seeing her in particular and not, you know, stereotyping her and she's seeing me in particular. And so I think, you know, just seeing each other in particular is something that I think is relevant and something we can do. Absolutely. Anyone else see? Uh, I think my story is a timeless story because it's about... Uh, how art is created, and in the case of J.D. Salinger, it was uh, born out of being in World War II, and about, uh, through trauma, uh, this individual creates a work of art that changes the world, which I think is a very uh, beautiful and timeless story, but also, it's, um, he was so driven to tell the truth in his work, and that's what separated him from so many writers of his era, was this drive for the truth, and we're living in a, an anti-truth era right now. And I think to see someone so committed to the truth and to see that you know, great art has to come from the truth hopefully can inspire a sense of uh, the importance of what the truth does mean in a society where the truth is wildly disappearing. Now, Drake, you, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Um, uh, Drake, I, I think th yours is particularly relevant in the sense that, um, you know, here are people who are addicted to Anybody on Tinder out here? Anybody hooking up with anybody in Park City? <laughs> <laughs> is that happening? All right, great. You're going to love my fucking movie. Um, yeah, it is. It's really relevant. I mean, it's about millennials, and it's about this sort of, um, this addiction that people have, and they're in relationships, and anytime anything goes wrong, the first sign of trouble, they can just swipe right and get rid of that problem and start something new and start something fresh. So it's really sort of this, this really hard look at this generation and what dating is like today. Uh, well, I mean, the, the big sick, you know, Kumail, Kumail is a stand-up comedian. He's a, he's a, he's a first-generation American. He... Move, he, he came to America when he was a teenager. He was born in Pakistan. He's Muslim. Um, he, Emily is from North Carolina. Um, so it's a lot about, and you know, it's a lot about difference and, and, and understanding each other. And, and, and what does it, as, as Dee said, what does it mean to be an American? What defines us as Americans? Um, is it the way we look? Is it what we believe in? Is it our religion? Like what, what, who, and, and, and who are we? And it's, uh, 
it, it, it is timely. I kind of like wish it weren't. Um, yeah, because when you made this film, obviously the relevance of the current administration was not something you probably could even have imagined. I mean, it was out there. I mean, there's a, you know, he, there's a big scene in the movie where he's doing stand-up comedy and he's being heckled by an audience member because he, because, who's saying he's in, he should go back to ISIS. He should go back to ISIS. And you know, for Kumail, that's very real. That's a very real thing that he deals with. And so, um, but yeah, like you kind of hoped like that wouldn't be as like painful to watch as it will be now. It's like, that's really what's going on. And so, um, you know, hopefully the movie will just, you know, if my parents, my mother is, is Jewish, my father's an Episcopalian, her family, uh, di you know, disowned her for marrying my father. This was back in the early 60s. And it's like, this is a big, this is a big kind of consistent thing that we have. It's like our, different, our differences divide us all the time. And it's, it's, uh, it's just something that we want to look at and, and talk about. And it's part of about. the melting pot experience. Yeah. So yeah. everyone's got to kind of deal with it. Now, David, you know, Ponzi schemes are always relevant. Well, having <laughs> seen Michael's film last night, which I love, The Big Sick, um, it, our film also is about an immigrant. Uh, you know, Jan Lewan uh, was from Poland and uh, immigrated to the United States, landed in Pennsylvania. And our film's a comedy, um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's the story of the American dream in a way. You know, he came here with admirable uh, thoughts and ideas about making something for himself and his family. Um, ultimately, as I said, he, he, he got off the rails doing that and made a lot of the wrong decisions um, in this $5 million polka Ponzi scheme. But he did it unintentionally. He kind of got in over his head, you know, so to speak. But you'll be the judge of that when you see the movie. But it is the, uh, the immigrant story landing here and wanting to make a better life for themselves. So, you know, it has that um, significance to it, I guess, in the underpinning of, of what the movie is. Now, uh, Drake and Dee, you both had films here in 2011 with Like Crazy and Pariah. I'm curious, from your perspective, how much you've seen the indie film business change in those six years. It's funny, because looking back, and I'm like, we never would have gotten Pariah made today, you know? Like, it was like, you know, we thought it was a miracle then, and if it was That's even like, more miraculous now. And so it feels like the middle has fallen out. Like, that, like, mid-range film doesn't get made, and... That's why I'm so grateful to the producers, Cassie Nelways, Charles King, because they're making exactly that kind of like, you know, mid-range film where, you know, people don't usually invest in and like, I still got to have like an indie cast. Well, not indie cast, but I mean, I got to have my cast. Like it wasn't like the foreign sales agents like spreadsheet of names, you know? Right. And so I feel like, you know, things have changed in that you have to wait longer and work harder to have what you want, you know? So, but it's been worth it and so the six years has like flown by and I'm glad that I waited and you know, I'd rather have a film every six years that I really feel strong about than to have a film every year where I'm compromising who I am and what I want to say and who I want to work with. So. Awesome. Uh, I just got here a couple hours ago so everything looks the same uh, <laughs> to me. Um, I don't know yet. It's interesting. Um, yeah, I haven't had a film here in four years actually. But uh, yeah, I mean... I think it's just, we, we need more personal films more than ever, really, now. So it's just exciting to, to hear everyone talk about their films and to, to get to see some films this week. So I just think more than ever we need them because distribution's changing so much and there's so many options out there that really personal, honest films are, are, are really needed. And uh, to see people making those films and getting them made is exciting still. Now, but at, by the same token, six years ago, Amazon was a place you bought your books online, and now they're paying $12 million for films like yours. Congratulations. <laughs> um, how much has the ecosystem changed the type of distribu distributor that you want to land with? 
Oh, uh, since you landed. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, hmm. Um, it feels it feels to me, and I and I have uh, you know, it feels to me like there's a lot going on out there. It feels like, you know, I've had a couple movies at Sundance too, not that I directed, but that I wrote or uh, co-wrote and produced. And it feels like there's more distributors. There's more. There, it, there's like more action. It feels like it was like the list was pretty short the first time I was here. Yeah. Which was you know almost 20 years ago with Wet Hot American Summer, and it was, was like, like Miramax and yeah, there was like Miramax and I Searchlight can, probably. Yeah, and, and 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 it was like there were like a few players, and you you kind of it was like very like all or nothing. Right. That's you pinned your hopes felt. on. Yeah, and there was no. There was no other way to get the movie seen, really, than to have it get distributed into theaters. Right. And and so I guess I feel like I'm amazed at how many ways there are, legitimate ways there are for uh, for people to. It seems like the movies are a little easy, they're a little cheaper to make. It's a little bit cheaper to make a movie. The cameras are better, and all that kind of stuff. So I I feel like the the world has changed a lot. Like hopefully for the better. Um, in that in that area, in the, just in the area of content. Now, <laughs> um, uh, now, for everyone else who will be selling their film in the next hours, days. Does anybody um, want to buy our film right now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. What's kind of the biggest consideration, like when you're talking to prospective buyers? I just want a distributor that's like passionate about you know the film. Like I used to think, oh, I want like the biggest place, but actually, I just want the place that's gonna like really stand behind the film and that gets it and can talk about it intelligently and doesn't put it in a box, doesn't reduce it to race, you know, and, get, and talks about family and relationships and citizenship. So I really want a distributor that's like smart in how they talk about it and that is passionate about it, you know, and, and you know really stays behind it. Yeah. And do people, by the way, that I, I like that you raise that point. They they want to pigeonhole it. They want to yeah. like. Uh, have you gotten the like? This will be the next blah blah blah, you know. Thank God, no. But I was worried, and I was like, "Oh my God, please don't reduce it down because it's so much more layered and complicated than that." And I think, you know, it actually is like less appealing, you know, yeah. when you put it in like kind of a rectangular kind of thing. So, yeah. And how about you, David? What are you looking for? Well, uh, as you said, I think passionate overused word, but appropriate. I think you want to find somebody to partner on the project in marketing and going out with the product that you know. Getting movies made is miracles, and, and we all know that, but uh, when they get made well, as, as all of your films here have, um, and I've seen a number of them, um, you know, you want to find the right partner in going out and marketing it strategically, you know, the demographic as to who the movie's for, and know that you have somebody who can really support it and understand it. And, you know, it's materials, it's, it's trailers, it's how to sell it, and selling is a big part of what we all do. We want eyes on the film. That's the goal here for all of us, and... So I think that's a big consideration, is that uh, passion shared with the uh, people who are going to go out in the world with our babies. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of you um, are multitasking on your films, uh, especially Matthew. You, have four, you wear four hats on your, on your current film. But, um, you know, how do you... And, and David, you're just producing. I wear one hat. Everybody <laughs> here is... I'm so flattered to be here, honestly. I only do one thing. I can't do anything anybody else does here. <laughs> so I'm a producer. How, how do you sort of, um, you know divide your time and divide on the project when you have all these different, you know, roles you're playing for you, Matthew? I mean, I think for me, you know, obviously docs are a little different and the budgets are a little different. Um, for me, it's all about intimacy with my characters and, you know, the types of docs that I make are very character-driven, narrative-driven. 
um, intimate, hopefully, portraits of people on some sort of journey. And so, you know, the idea of having a huge crew, two cameras, lights, sound men, women, um, you know, it's just not how, how it works. And, you know, I, being able to do all that on my own, I think it allows me to get those very intimate uh, moments that I wouldn't be able to get with a much larger crew. Um, you know, I also know how to edit, and um, I work with other editors too, but um, I think it's just, it's nice to be able to um, wear all the hats and sort of have my imprint on all different parts of the process. By the way, what was more dangerous for you, cartel land or ISIS? You know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> who would you rather? Neither, I guess. Um, distributors. <laughs> distributors are. <laughs> cartel land is much more physically dangerous. You know, I was being shot at in, in meth labs and all sorts of other crazy places. Um, the danger of ISIS is much more amorphous. Um, and, you know, the real danger of the guys that are in my film, the guys that have risked their lives to show their faces, to expose the truth of what's happening uh, under the so-called caliphate. Um, so they're the ones in real danger. They're the ones who have died fighting for what they believe in. And I'm just a conduit to tell their story. Now, you won't be able to answer this question, but I want to hear about the casting considerations for all of you. And also, Drake and Danny, do you fight over Nick Holt? Or, um... He's mine. <laughs> yeah, because he, Drake, he's made two movies with you and then sandwiched... Uh, or... I can't wait to see him in the film, by the way. Yeah, he's amazing, Nick. Uh, you know, as, as Drake knows. He's, he's great. He's I don't know why everybody black. else on here hasn't casted him. <laughs> I got him next, next film is mine. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. There you go. Uh, with, with mine, I knew that this piece of casting was, um, was everything. That that was the movie. I mean, I'm doing a movie about J.D. Salinger, so whoever plays, the film will live or die, literally with that piece of casting. And so I did an extremely slow, methodical journey to figuring out who would play this part. And I basically watched just you know, reels and footage and material of all the actors in that age range. And there's a lot of really terrific actors in that mid-20s. And I needed him to be able to play 20 to 24 through 80% of the movie, and then he gets a little bit older towards the end. He ends up in his mid-30s, but the bulk of the film is that sort of mid-20s, early-20s period. And um, when I watched, when I got to Nick Holt, um, who I didn't know that much about, I started watching, you know, scenes of him in different movies. In every scene, he was nothing like he was in the scene before. And there wasn't really anyone in that age range that had that character actor ability. Um, and like I said, actors that I love, but I didn't see anything like that. And I just thought, oh my gosh, this guy is like Gary Oldman. I literally thought, this is, this is a 25-year-old Gary Oldman. So I, he went to the top of my list, and then I met with about four or five actors that I loved and asked them to read, and four of them came in red, and after Nick's audition, it was just, you're the guy. So that, that was the journey to Nick. All right. Yeah, I can't say anything else other than, for my money, uh, anyone from 25 to 30, he's, he's the best right now. And David, for you, I mean, Jack Black seems like, I, I can't really quite picture anyone else playing this role. No, nor can I. And the good news for me is it's a short story um, because this movie, from uh, the moment I saw the documentary that it was based on until it got made, was three years, which is like lightning. Um, but uh, it's like lightning for a reason because I saw the documentary, acquired the life rights to this gentleman's story and the documentary filmmakers as well who co-produced the movie with me and uh, with Stuart uh, Kornfeld from Red Hour. And 
I saw the documentary, and all I did was send the documentary with Stuart and Red Hour to Jack. And literally, I think in 48 hours, I got a phone call. I was born to play Jan Lawan. <laughs> and so we had Jack Black committed before one word of the script was written. And then fortunately, we tailored the script for him. So we had a major star in Jack who knew the script was tailored. You know, this idea of playing this character appealed so much to him. So it was one-stop shopping, which doesn't happen often. But he morphed into the character. I think when you see the film, you'll see what I mean. And now, Dee, you said you got the cast you wanted. Um, so, but I would imagine somebody like Carey Mulligan is at the top of the buyer list for international sales or whatever. But um, you know, w what were the considerations that made you want her and made you want um, Jason and your other cast members? Yeah, in general, I need act actors and actresses that were willing to be raw, that were willing to be vulnerable and just like completely like vacate their face. And like Carrie's work I'd seen, like she's someone else and Carrie on set, I mean, it's amazing. We, you know, and there's one scene actually where like she's trying to like wrangle the kid and like the kid is like actually like, okay, I wanna go have a cookie now. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, let's just go close on Carrie. And she was like, boom, she just did it, you know? And so with Carrie, I just know that she just really stays in character. And you know, we didn't have a lot of time. We shot this in 27 days. We got rained out two of the days. So we really shot in 25 days. And you know, so that means there's no going back to the trailer. You know, that means there is no sexy trailer actually. So, you know, I just wanted actors that were willing to like be with me and wait in their Ford Focus, you know? and then come out and trudge through the mud and like do this film. And so same thing with Jason, Jason Mitchell, he just has that face. I just go by faces, you know, and just have certain characters in mind and like you just know how their face, I want it like angles and like, yeah. And um, same thing with Rob Morgan, I worked with him on Pariah and I was like, he's hap. And like I fought for him with producers like, I know you don't understand Rob Morgan, you don't know who he is, but you're gonna know him. And like, I fought for Hap and Mary J. Blige, you know, Florence's character, she's very internal and very reserved. She sees everything, but says little. I'm sorry, says very little. And so Mary has that natural reserve, but that like life behind the eyes. And so it's just with each character, I was thinking about like what was needed. And Jason Clark, he's great. He's like this big, swaggering, salt of the earth dude. He's like, oh, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna fucking do? He's just like, he just throws himself into it and just like, he just like hurls himself. So I wanted actors that would just hurl themselves at the material, would do whatever, would be muddy, would be ugly, would be bloody, and not be self-conscious about it. And so, yeah. Now, Michael, for your lead, you probably didn't have to think too hard about it, but I, I could imagine some potential financiers being like, well, this is a great script, but could we get Leo to play yeah, the yeah. Pakistani play, um, yeah. comedian? Yeah. yeah. No, that was pretty much a deal breaker that Camille was gonna play himself uh, in the movie. Um, but uh, we, 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 as we were developing the script and the story, we, we kind of like started writing the, the, the characters of Emily, who play, played by Zoe Kazan, and in real life is Camille's wife, Emily Gordon, who wrote the script. Um, but the, the, her parents, who are really, was, a, was, was a characters that were, ended up being kind of not like her actual parents, but we sort of created those characters for Holly Hunter and Ray Romano. We just envisioned them in those roles as we were talking about it. We love the pairing of those two, those two actors. And so we kind of, in the script process, started developing it with them in mind before we knew if they would do it. Um, but um, That's a risk. Yeah, well, I, for, I think I forgot to mention that Judd Apatow is the executive producer of this movie. And so I think we felt, we felt through him, like he knew both, he kind of knew both of them. And so it was, there was a feeling of like, it was at least a possibility. Um, and so, uh, you know, when we, we, we just sent them the scripts and kind of said like, you're the only people we want for these parts. It has to be you. Um, they came in and worked with us a lot on, on, on each of them, came in and really helped us create the characters further. And um, 
as everyone was saying, I mean, like, you know, just for me, I like, I like actors who like, I feel like I, who exude a goodness, who, who give a, who, that's good for comedy, I find. Like a feeling of like, that this, you're watching someone who's a genuinely good person. It doesn't mean that they're not flawed or, or, or fucked up in a lot of different ways, but that just that, that they're real. And uh, Ray and Holly have that, you know? And then Zoe Kazan as well, and so. Um, but a lot of it is just kind of, you go by feel, you just kind of go by like, who do I want to watch? Who do I want to, who do I want to see play these parts? Who do I want to spend these two hours yeah, with? Yeah. Now, Danny and Michael, you both were, have been actors in the past. Um, I'm curious how that influences how you directed your um, cast members. Um, yeah, I mean, I think my background as an actor... Remind everybody in case we don't have Mad Men fans in the house here. And... What should I remind them? Danny Siegel. Danny Siegel from Mad Men, sure. One of the great characters. Yeah. In American literature. Yeah. Even though it was never in literature. And you um, got to punch um, Roger Sterling. In the balls. Mm. It's my claim to fame. So I punched Roger Sterling in the balls because he had it coming, and I'm the one that gave it to him. Um, I, you know, I totally, uh, as a director, my background as an actor informs it a thousand percent. I mean, I, you know, I was, am still an actor, and to have 25 years of credits as an actor and I just know what they're thinking because I've lived that life um, the way they have so I try to talk to them the way I like uh, directors to talk to me and um, and I try to make it uh, I, it's about them it's not about me you know it's a, so it's it's really just trying to create an environment where they're loose and creative and hopefully having fun and getting the best work out no, I'd say the same. I mean, I, I feel a little bit like the guy, you know, like the, the kid that played basketball in high school but, like, wasn't good enough to play in, in, after that. And, like, <laughs> I have so much respect. I don't feel like I am an actor. I, I, I feel like I see what real actors are, and it's just, like, it's very athletic to me. It's, it's, it's like being an athlete. It's, like, so physical. It requires so much body control and so much discipline and so much dedication, and there's this, like this like, you know, stuntman woman quality to it of like they just throw themselves into it and I, I could never do that. I could never do that. And, and so I feel like I, 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 res I have deep respect and understanding for what they're, what, as Danny said, what they're going through and then maybe a little bit of a perspective of like how I could maybe help them get what they want, you know, like help them maximize what they think they're going for and be someone that they can trust. Be someone that they can go to and come up to me and go, was that, was that what we were going for? And we can, we can kind of speak the same language. But, like, I'm, like, totally in awe of, like, what I believe a true actor is. Like, a totally, like, nothing I ever did, you know? And so that's why I like, I'm not in this big movie. I had no desire to be in this movie. I, it's, like, not what, get, it's not what gets me excited. I like work, I, I'm in awe of a good actor. It's a beautiful, uh, unbelievable, rare skill. Speaking of that, I just, I just want to shout out Garrett Hedlund, who's, like, an absolute fucking gem in this movie. I mean, and just in terms of working with him, he totally trusted me. He's like, he got beat up, he got punched, and he was like, yeah, and he, just, he, was, he was just into it and became like an absolute like, like rag doll, but also had this layeredness and in terms of the casting, like, Jamie had to be beautiful, but he had to be deep, you know, and like this kind of like dark philosopher. And so Garrett brought that layeredness. He wasn't just the beauty, he was the, the darkness. And, he, and just in terms of trusting me, it's like we put him in like a muddy hole and started filling up with water, you know, and it's like, it's gonna be okay. And he's like, thrashing and like you know I forget that it's not really happening I'm like concerned for his safety and he's like you know just in it and just really immersing like he's gagging he's choking and he just really put his whole body into it you know so yeah I'd like to go through uh, the panel and ask what would be your dream project starting with you Matthew 
you have lots of time to think about it, Michael. <laughs> I don't. I don't really dream about projects. I think the projects like hit me in the face. Um, well, what story's not being told right now in documentaries? To, I, I'm dead serious. Like, I, I don't like script what's going to happen in the future with Cartel Land. It smacked me in the face. I read an article. <clears throat> it just grabbed me by the heart, and I felt like I had to tell that story. This, um, I was traveling around with Cartel Land. Uh, I read about, you know, ISIS was becoming front page news. I started reading obsessively about ISIS and trying to understand this phenomenon, this phenomenon of extremism. And, um, but I couldn't find a way into the story. And then suddenly I read this New Yorker piece by David Remnick um, about this group, Rockets Being Slaughtered Silently. And right there I just knew that this is, this is my way into the story. So. My answer is, you know, any journalists who are writing good stories out there, I'll, I'm waiting to see what, what they are. Um, that's generally how I found my films. Um, and you haven't found your next project yet? Um, I'm, I'm working on a series right now um, that I can't talk about and uh, <laughs> a couple of other things that I'm working on, but yeah. Drake, uh, dream project? Yeah, I'd probably say I'd like to make a musical set in Los Angeles, people texting and writing in freezes. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I can get that made, but I'll try. I'd um, see that. I'd see that movie. There you go. Um, you know, to be honest, I... I, I you should make the one of, with Miles Teller and yeah, Watson. Yeah, done. Um, I, I just want to keep working with, with, with my best friends and collaborators and the people that have been a part of my career forever. And You know, uh, Laia Costa, who's kind of a newcomer in the States, is, is phenomenal in my film, and she's in this film called Victoria, and I think she's going to have a really exciting Sundance, so I'm excited to kind of expose her to everybody here and just like everybody you get to work with and getting to work with them again you, the more you work together the more you get to push each other so um, you know just continuing to work with the same people is exciting so that's I think that's the most exciting thing but I'm starting a movie in uh, May called Zoe with uh, Leia Sadu and Ewan McGregor it's produced by Ridley Scott so I'm excited about that and then uh, after that we'll see what happens and Ridley produced your um, yeah he produced Eunice. he produced our film about people texting on the internet yeah how how much of a uh, like as like the, you know this amazing director himself like does he you know how much input yeah he's he incredibly have? smart and incredibly tapped into today and filmmaking today so I mean he's just he's great with with ideas and notes and he's really fun I mean they were cutting Alien Covenant right next door to us or we were cutting our, our, our beautiful little texting love story. So it was like just really funny to hear all the, uh, the, the alien sounds up against all of our sex sounds <laughs> that were bouncing off of each other for a couple of months. So it was really kind of interesting. I mean, it's like, you know, and then he'd come in and he'd look at stuff and he'd be like, oh, that's amazing. I mean, it's just, just amazing that his eye is just, you know, th there's no genre that, that's untapped. So it's cool to have him on our side and guiding us. Danny. Uh, dream project, uh, young J.D. Salinger writing Catcher in the Rye. Um, I don't know, you know. Um, you could go through the literary greats. So go literary, yeah, yeah. Ernest Hemingway. See you all. I, 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 there's a I, idea I have of something I'm excited about, but I don't want to talk about it. Um, why would I do well, that? We, we have like, you know, uh, but, uh, just a couple of yeah, no one's here. Your no, closest friends. Um, you know, I just saw The Crown, and I th and it's really fantastic, and it's it's sort of the closest you'll get to David Lean, I think, that gets made nowadays. And to do something like that, some epic miniseries and write and direct it would be about some really cool subject matter. It'd be pretty cool. David, dream project. Well, i tell you honestly, my dream project is to cross paths with every one of you on this panel, being a producer and without the ability as a writer, director, creator, actors up here, 
And I've seen all of your movies here at Sundance, your opening film. I saw yours last night, and I saw yours when you were here with Pariah. I saw all your films here at Sundance, and I've seen most of your work. So my dream project would be in business with people on this panel. Um, but, you know, I, I've been doing this a long time, the oldest guy on the panel, as you may notice. And, um, you know, so I made a lot of movies, and Harry Warner, the older brother of Jack Warner, one of the four founding brothers of Warner Brothers, he had a very different edict than his younger brother, Jack. Jack only cared about selling popcorn. It was all about commerce. And Harry Warner felt that the power of movies had to do three things. And he referred to the three things as the uh, three E's. Educate, enlighten, and entertain. And when you can do that in a movie, and there are different movies, and I made a lot of movies that sell popcorn and don't do that. And I made a few that do that. Uh, Hacksaw Ridge speaks to that, my most recent film out. And... You know, you guys have made movies uh, he up here on the panel that do that. And so I can't talk about a specific project, but, you know, uh, if I can make a movie that serves those purposes and educate and entertain and enlightens all in one, that's really the goal. Um, and I can tell you just one specific project, which I probably shouldn't talk about because I don't have the rights yet, um, but I love Gleason. And if those of you who saw the documentary Gleason... It's a story which is a pretty amazing story about Steve Gleason. And if I'm lucky enough at some point, maybe uh, that's a project I would love to be able to tell the narrative version of a story about Steve Gleason. So check are out you, Are the you in negotiation? Um, I'm not uh, anywhere. I'm just <laughs> passionate about the project and probably not to right, just not to leave the room just between us. I shouldn't be talking about <laughs> future. But, you know, it's a great story. And, uh, and anyway, it's uh, something specific that I shouldn't be talking about. So can we edit that out? Oopsie. Uh, anyway. My dad's a um, retired police officer. He was a police officer for like over 30 years, Nashville Metro. And so I grew up a cop's daughter. And growing up as a cop's daughter, I got to see, you know, him be viewed simultaneously as a traitor and as a hero, you know. And I got to see when the uniform came off, he became just another black man to be feared and suspicious, you know, feared and suspected. And so, you know, there's this KRS one, this KRS one song called Black Cop, Black Cop. So I want to do a move, a, you know, a piece on black police officers and what it means to take to take on and put up and take off this uniform and what this uniform means in different communities and what they move in. And um, then I'm doing this sci-fi project. I hired a concept artist, so I want to like make my own Star Wars. I, uh, I, I mean, I, 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 my dream project, which is a script I'd like to write, which will take a little while, uh, similar to, 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 it's a personal story. My mother was the first woman chair, chairperson of the Princeton University English Department. And, um, and so I grew up a faculty kid, which is a very unique uh, uh, kind of upbringing. Like, ever, all of us have a unique story about that. But, um, and it was a, uh, I don't know, like I'd love to make, a I'd love to somehow get to a time where I could sort of talk about what that was like, the kind of conversations we had around the dinner table, um, being a faculty kid, and then have enough money in the budget to like afford songs um, <laughs> that, that were so big, such a big part of, of me and, and are so in my blood, like new wave music and like the police and the Go-Go's and Elvis Costello. So like my dream project would be to have a movie where we could afford the soundtrack the kind of songs I actually listened to growing up. Um, but that's like ways, that's years from happening. Like I just take, I know it's going to take a really long time to write that. And so in between that is just like what he said, the three E's. That's exactly what it is. Like it's got to, it's got to have value for me. It can't, I, I want it to be entertaining, but it's also got to be like, 
it's got to be worth something. You know, it's got it. It has to do something more than just entertain. After this week, you'll probably never have bad pitch meetings again. But um, I, I want to hear who's had a terrible pitch meeting and can kind of recount it. <laughs> What's your worst pitch meeting you've ever had? And Matthew, I assume you've even had bad pitch meetings. We we need money as well for documentaries. <laughs> uh, I think, I mean, one of the biggest issues in, in funding documentaries is people want a script. You know, they want to know what the beginning, middle, and end is. And for the types of docs that I make, that's what I love, is that I have no idea. I love living in uncomfortable... You can't write one that says, ISIS will be eradicated from the face of the earth by... I, I wish I could write that, um, <laughs> but that would be a science fiction, science fiction uh, movie. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, for me, that those are frustrating when people don't see don't believe that the story will evolve, don't believe that the, you know, the first act is important, even though we don't know what the second or third is. And I've had hundreds and hundreds of those where people are like, it's so wonderful, but can you come back when the film is over? Um, so, yeah. Anybody have a bad pitch meeting they want to? I had a, my favorite pitch meeting, and I spent years as a screenwriter for hire, so I would do this all the time, going to pitch meetings. And uh, I walked in and I said, I literally opened the pitch. I said, okay, so there's this guy, and he's like, house. And she went, stop, I hate house. <laughs> and I went, okay, he's like Tony Soprano. And she went, that's fucking brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, she didn't buy it, but I just, it's my favorite, I think it's my favorite pitch meeting of all time. Was, that is great to know for everybody. Just here. say a name, and you're a genius. You know. <laughs> My, my, uh, this is so many years ago, there was an executive at Columbia Pictures, um, and I was in with a writer early Man. on in my career, and I'm, I'm pitching a project to him, and he had a button under his desk, and the button under the desk basically opened and closed his door, and in the middle of a pitch meeting, you knew you were in trouble. Was you know, it John Peters? Little, and I, and I probably need oiling or something, but I swear, we were sitting there pitching, and I was like, you know, the door opened, and that was like, that was a nightmare. And I don't remember what that was so long ago, but I remember that door opening. That was like in the middle of the pitch. My worst I, meeting was like, we didn't even get into the fucking room. Like, somebody had agreed to meet us. We're in the lobby. It's like, oh, so sorry. We're not going to meet you anymore. But, you know, hand us your thing. They'll go, black lesbian coming of age. No, sorry. You know, so it's like, yeah. I didn't even get in the room. This isn't a pitch meeting, but this was when I was just graduated from college, and I got a I got a meeting for an agent to be an, an actor. My I a good friend of mine had had an agent, and he got me a meeting with his agent, Paradigm. I don't know if they're I think they're still agents. And I got like headshots taken, and I got like a whole outfit. I had like a vest, like a like an Art Garfunkel vest, and like <laughs> and I like had my hair all like in my perfect like swoopy, and I got there early half an hour, 45 minutes early, and I'm sitting there, and at exactly 11 o'clock a.m. when the meeting was, a guy who I felt like might be the guy I was there to meet poked his head out, looked at me, like looked at me up and down, like just fully checked me out, and then left. And then I sat there for about another 45 minutes, and then they said, he'll see you now, and it was that guy. And he said, can I have your headshot? And I handed him my headshot, and he looked at it, and he said, we're not looking for guys like you. Handed me the headshot back, and I rode back to Princeton, New Jersey, on the train going, that didn't go well. <laughs> you know, that was like my first experience was like, you don't look right. Yeah. Um, often her, okay. yeah, really. <laughs> he, he, hopefully he saw the headlines today. Um, 
Now, uh, Matthew, have you ever wanted to make a narrative feature? And also then I will ask the others on the panel if you've ever wanted to make a documentary. Um, I think a lot of doc filmmakers use it as like a gateway drug um, to yeah. make features. Um, I've always wanted to make docs, but um, after Cartel End, I, I was you know, given a few opportunities and I was actually attached to direct my first feature um, about a journalist, Marie Colvin, who was killed in Syria. So I'm in development on that and hopefully we'll be making that next year or this year. Uh, I think it's the purest form of filmmaking, to be honest. And the, my favorite movie is to watch a documentary, so I'm just blown away by, by the risks you take and the stories you tell. So for me, it's like, I would love to do one. Um, I think what it's would amazing. be the subject? A um, uh, um, uh, bunch of people singing and dancing in the streets of Los Angeles <laughs> on the freeway. Yeah, texting and Priuses. Yeah, I'm the same way. I love documentaries. It's my favorite thing to watch or docs. And uh, I just really admire what you guys do. It's, it's really amazing. And um, especially your stuff. It sounds <laughs> unreal. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I would love to do a doc. I mean, I do a lot of true stories in, my, in the projects that I do. Um, but, you know, when I was doing um, The Butler, I was just so immersed in civil rights history and, uh, and it took me a really long time to write that script. It was very complicated to write. And I, I remember thinking that what would be a really terrific documentary would be to find one of these racist sheriffs from the period, you know, someone like Bull Connor, and all these years later to just interview them, kind of Errol Morris style, and just how do they feel now? What do they think of what they did and, and that era and everything about it? I just was a, a perspective that, uh, you don't hear a lot about when you're researching the civil rights movement, and uh, I just thought that could be interesting. You know, I have made a doc. Uh, I made a number of docs. One of them was called The Boys, about the dysfunctional relationship between Richard and Robert Sherman, the guys who wrote Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, Mary Poppins music, and they lived seven blocks from each other and hated each other and never saw each other socially. <laughs> so it's about the disconnected relationship between two brothers. And we did that with Ben Stiller producing with me in Red Hour. And we did that a number of years ago. But Hacksaw Ridge is a documentary that you can see. It's called The Conscientious Objector. Polka King is a documentary. I mentioned The Man Who Would Be Polka King, which is my movie's based on the Polka King. And Gleason, um, which she wants. What's that? And Gleason, which Well, Gleason, wants. which you said it's a dream project. It's yeah. a dream project. I have nothing, and I don't even know whether there's interest in doing that. But uh, I was just candid by, by saying Gleason really had a deep emotional impact on me. And... Many of the projects I'm doing are true stories, so, and many of them have documentary components. I've seen all your documentaries, and truth is stranger than fiction, and so many of the movies are inspired or based on true stories today. So I, I love the genre, and so many docs eclipse a lot of the narrative films being made today. So I'm a big fan of the genre. Yeah, I actually um, did a feature doc before I did my first feature. It's called uh, Eventual Salvation. I did it in 2007 for the Sundance Channel. And it's about my grandmother, who was born in 1925, Louisiana, to sharecroppers, deciding that she didn't want to be a sharecropper. And so World War II opened up job opportunities for her in California, so she moved, the, she moved out to California. And then, you know, 1954, Brown versus Board of Education hits, and she still didn't believe that she'd find citizenship in this country, so she expatriated to Liberia and stayed through most of the Civil Wars. And so the documentary, you know, juxtaposes, like, the journey then and the journey now, where I follow her back, you know, to try to, like, rebuild her house after the Liberian Civil War. And... Um, so I would do a doc again, but I realized that 
it really requires like a longer investment. And so it has to be a subject that I want to be with for like five years, you know. And so I would, I would have, I would have gotten more material. You know, the thing I learned is like, oh, I needed to really shoot her for five years, not for like you know, months. So yeah. I, I also love. It's my favorite. It's my favorite thing to watch this documentary. Um, so I don't Sundance know. Sundance is a great place. Oh, I love it. I love it. I, I don't know if I'd ever make one, but it's. I, I love watching documentaries. It's my favorite. Um, I think we're going to throw it out to the audience now. If um, people have questions, um, youth, and you can ask specific panelists. Um, well, first of all, I want to thank everybody. Uh, you know, your stories are absolutely tremendous, and you're all inspiring to me. Um, I traveled across country, and I'm actually doing a documentary about heroin addiction. And uh, it's through the eyes of a seven-year-old girl. And I was able to shoot the film for 20000 And, um, you know, I have it in the can. So I guess the story is for Matt. What advice do you have for me as a um, filmmaker to get this thing made and just out there? Because right now, I don't know anybody. I have no fucking money. It sucks. <laughs> like... What do I do, dude? I got a great fucking story. <laughs> I need like, I need a beer, tequila, like, like I just need to just, you know, just do it. I, it's a, it's a doc, have, you said. It's a documentary, yeah. Uh, I shot it over two years, too, so you see it passing a time. Yeah, it's, I mean, every doc is, you know, such a difficult thing to make happen. Um, I think... You know, find people that believe in you. Find producers that believe in you. Hey, producers, um, what's up? <laughs> yeah, you guys should introduce, doing, yeah. you know, introduce yourself yeah. here. Um, it's, it's, it's really hard to give advice on, on people who are you know, just getting out. But I think for me, you know, my first film, I, never, I didn't go to film school. I never shot a camera before. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any idea what I was doing. I just went out there and grabbed a camera, found a story that moved me, and went out and got my hands dirty. So I think what you're doing is, is the best thing you can be doing. Just, just go out there and make it. And you know, follow follow the story through. You know, live with it as long as you can, and uh, hopefully it'll come out. Thank you. Um, and I also have a um, business card with a flash drive, with the film proposal, the budget, the contact, um, and my past work. So uh, feel free to hit me up after this panel. Thank you very much. <laughs> we'll do a uh, sidebar after the uh, panel. Any other questions? Uh, how about you, sir? You in the blue shirt. Um, so what about these projects when you sort of came upon deciding to do them said to you, this needs to be a film? Um, for example, David, your, your projects are based on documentaries. What was the thing about the documentaries that said, there's something about this that now needs to be told as a narrative in a feature that, say, is a comparative piece to the documentary or is going to take it somewhere that the documentary didn't? And, and do you also and, mean in, instead of TV, like episodic TV? Yeah, the thing, I, the thing I tend to find about, you know, stories that independent films are based on is how do you look at it and decide this is a, this is a feature? Right. This is a narrative feature because in sort of the culture that we're in right now where, you know, the, the sort of studio mentality of pre-awareness and, and it won't sell if they're, you know, you don't have the actor. You know, how do you look at these sort of smaller stories and say this, is, this, this deserves to be a feature just like... Rogue One deserves to be a feature. Right. Well, I, I, for me, it's really about um, if I think something can be great. That's the first, that's the first thing. Right? I'm just so excited about it. that I'm like, this can be great. And yes, the film that I just did is not what studios are looking to do. So where else does it belong? 
So, the, so I'm not going to take it to Warner Brothers or Disney or a studio, which I didn't, right? So it's, it's, once you find subject matter that excites you and that you're passionate about, then you figure out, okay, well, where does it belong? Who does? Because there is, what's neat about this marketplace now is there is, someone does something, you know? There's a buyer for something. And then you have to realize, okay, well, it's a smaller movie, so I have to do it for a smaller budget and try and find partners that do those kinds of projects. So it's not as if every idea has to be on the Rogue One standard of, well, that's what is done. You know, we know what studios are doing now. They're doing international temples, right? But there's a whole other series of buyers and distributors that are doing different types of films. And it's a matter of first you being excited about what you're doing and then finding where that belongs. But, but something, and you brought up The Crown earlier. Like, that's a perfect example of, like, you know, could that have been just a two-hour movie or, you know, lengthen it and really develop the characters? And, D, you've, you've done HBO's Bessie. Like, what does make you look at a story and say, this is a, lives in the two-hour format versus 10-hour over a season kind of thing? Yeah, I think it's just kind of like what part of the story you want to tell because Bessie spends like, you know, 20, 30 years, but it's like, okay, so how do you, so it's okay, you know, if it's a movie format, we can't go cradle to grave, so like what do we want this film to be about? And so this is a film about a woman who's unable to accept love and then, okay, then you can do that in a movie. But if you wanted to tell the full thing, then maybe it would need to be a series. So I think it's just like finding things that you're obsessed with and like figuring out the format that will best suit them. Like for my black policeman thing I want to do, for me, like, that's a series because I'm spanning 40 years and I can't tell that in two hours. And, you know, it's, like, generational. And so for Mudbound, like, I read the script and read the book. and was like, oh, yeah, this is, like, this is about coming home. This is about friendship. And so this is something that can be done, you know. And so it's picking the canvas that best, you know, suits the narrative. And I you, like, don't know. You just kind of go with your gut. You, you don't go. It's, like, what you think makes sense. And you make it work. It's what you're obsessed about. I mean, people just elaborate on that. People ask me all the time, you know, what are you looking for? You know, and I, you know, as a producer, it's like uh, I look for something that affects me emotionally. You know, if it's a comedy, I'm reading a script or hearing a pitch or whatever form it's in, and I'm laughing out loud like I did with uh, Polka King with Seeing the Doc. If I'm laughing, I think other people are going to be laughing with me. I don't think about marketing, selling, anything. Nobody knows anything, but I think you know what your passion is, and when you live with the movie as many years as we all do, uh, trying to tell stories... It all, all is about how you're affected emotionally and hits you in the gut, it hits you in the heart, and that's why you stay with it uh, and you're unrelenting, you don't give up. Um, you. Uh, first, I want to say thank you to all of you. This is really interesting. I'm a college student actually here on a class. I'm a uh, history major and a TV cinema arts major. So I want to know how can you grasp the essence of a real life person? and transform it into a character for a narrative film. I mean, I can kind of answer that. Uh, you know, we just made this movie where we have a real-life person who plays himself in the movie, and he actually plays a character whose name is exactly what his name is, and it is actually what happened to him. But I never saw it that way. And I, I sort of was like, and, and it, wasn't, it wasn't adversarial per se, but it was sort of like, I never, I don't want to make this sound, make this sound the wrong way, I never really cared about what really happened. And I, I didn't, I, I sort of saw that as my role because I wanted to make the movie. And as an actor who's also written for myself, 
you need to get this moment where like you're not in it's not just a journal entry or it's not you're not just like it isn't that like weird thing where you're where there's no creative distance you have to get find a moment where you are creatively distant from it and that's a click moment where it's like good that's like what you want i want i should say it's what i want so with with big sick was to try to both to to was for me to slowly get emily and kumail both to kind of separate themselves from this is my story to this is a movie that we're making that was inspired by our by our stories and even though kumail nanjiani plays kumail nanjiani even he would tell you it's not himself it's a character that he's playing that is like one step removed from himself it's a really weird moment, but it's for, for me and in, in a lot of the stuff that I've done, it's like actually that click moment where you get creative distance that allows you to be critical of what you're doing. Because if you don't have creative distance, you can't be critical of it because it's, it's too personal. And so you need to separate yourself to where you're like, you're not, you're not so married to it that you can't also look at it and be honest with, with what you're doing. This doesn't work. This has to go. What are we putting in its place? Da, 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 da. I think we have time for one more question. Uh, you... When it came to doing the series for your Wet Hot American Summer, how hard was it to get most of your original cast back to do that for you? Uh, it was it, honestly, it was very easy. They all were psyched to do it, and we didn't ask for, for a lot of their time either. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you all for coming. And before you leave, um, oh yes, let's give a big hand for our panel. <laughs>